Hello and welcome to the Paddock Bees podcast. I'm Tim Nash, a beekeeper always wanting to learn more and also the man behind the Paddock Bees account on Instagram. This is a podcast for those who've fallen into the beekeeping trap and want to learn a little bit more from the beekeeping community. Each week, we'll mix up the guests and provide some insights into the world of beekeeping. So sit tight and we'll soon make a start. Now for those tuning in to today's podcast, we'll be talking with a guest who has a solid 17 years worth of beekeeping experience under his belt. He's progressed on from just selling honey and expanded into the world of mead. I'm delighted to be joined by Matt from Y Valley Meadery, who are on a quest to blend traditional style with modern tastes. We're talking about beekeeping and mead made new. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Good to be here. Now, before I get started on this interview, there's one thing I need to do first, and that is get my bottle opener, get my bottle, because today I'm going to be tucking into the Y Valley Meadery sparkling mead honey and hops whilst we go through this one. So if you hear any gulps, that's me <laughs> tucking into this. See at what point in this interview I give you my feedback and when it's finished, but it's uh, <laughs> it's something to tuck into and I'm looking forward to it. So let me ask you ask you a few questions so I can start yep. drinking this rather than just smelling it. Going back to Fun. the beginning, when did yeah. you start beekeeping and what got you initially interested in keeping bees? Well, so I I am now 31 years old and I started beekeeping when I was about 13 or 14. I think it was about when I was about just coming to my 14th birthday and I had ant farms. I was interested in nature. I was interested in pond dipping and I was interested in all sorts of things around me. And I thought, oh, you know, I've got a book about beekeeping and I really wanted to get into it. I thought that was the best thing ever. So I collared a commercial beekeeper at one of our local shows around here. And in, in, we're in South Wales on the Y Valley, uh, right in the Y Valley in Chepstow. That's where I live. And I spoke to a beekeeper who kept bees in the Forest of Dean and up the Y Valley. And I said, hey, can I come out beekeeping with you? And he was about oh, 65 years old. And he said, yeah, OK, fine, uh, fine. And I was, I was super keen, you know, really, really keen. I was a young lad and um, I used to carry a smoker around and he said, yeah, fine. So I used to carry a smoker, get bits of, you know, boxes and things. I used to be his running boy to and from the Land Rover um, and generally just get in the way. Um, I used to put the smoker down on the hive next door um, after I'd finished, uh, you know, just gently giving the bees just a bit of smoke to calm them down. And he'd go, oh, you've really upset them there, Matt. And I'd go, Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, so then we'd open them and they'd be all upset because we'd just put the smoker down on the roof of the hive next door. Uh, so, yeah, I, I got into it by shadowing and helping out and being a general apprentice to a local beekeeper. He ran 500 beehives. So he was a busy guy um, and he was, you know, getting on. Uh, in years he's retired since and i've bought um when i started my own operation i bought 10 of his hives from him which was really great so he sort of started me off uh in my own journey but uh yeah so that's how i got into it i learned from a guy who was incredibly busy incredibly knowledgeable i think i've you know i don't think i'll <laughs> he knew all sorts of things about beekeeping just to spending a whole lifetime immersed in it he'd be able to walk into a yard uh, a bee yard and pick out the five hives you wanted to look at and look at them all and leave the other 
10 or so just to get on with their life. Um, because it, from those five hives, you could tell exactly what the whole of the apiary was doing, which is something that still boggles me. I, you know, sometimes I really need to go into every single hive because there's either some that are really strong and they're going to swarm or really weak and they need me to help them. And uh, he managed to, to, yeah, he managed to keep them all to the same level and only need to see high, five beehives, which was just incredible. So, yeah, I learned from him. I worked from him since I was 14. And I, I, he then retired and I um, went and lived. <laughs> I've traveled around a bit, but I went and lived in Australia when I was about 20 or 21. Um, yeah. So I uh, left him. Then I worked for him during the weekends and during uh, summer holidays and things at, at school. And uh, yeah, I left to go and live in Australia after that. And he then since retired. And then I came back um, and he sold me 10 of his hives before he fully retired and moved to France. So that's how I started. So, so you've got 10 of his hives. How yeah, many since, other colonies have you got? What's your current colony? Yeah, sure. So since I, I bought 10 of his hives off him about, uh, it would have been about four years ago now in 2016. So it, we're coming to our fifth year and now we run 150 hives um, of, 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 of bees. Yeah, so uh, 130 of which, or 120 probably is probably more generous, of which um, are production hives and we run 30 or so. Uh, product, uh, and nucleus hives. Now, a nucleus, your, your mis- listeners may not know, is um, for we run uh, a beehive called a modified dadent, or um, yeah, a modified dadent or a Langstroth jumbo. So we don't run nationals with us. We run those that size of hive. It's deeper. It's bigger. It uh, it holds more honey and more bees. We overwinter with a single brood box, which is the lower level. That's the size of hive we run. And now, Tim, I'm sure you're going to ask me why I do that. And I can answer you that in very much detail. But yeah, we run modified dadents and I bought 10 of his hives from him. I run 150 and we run, uh, we run about 30 nucleus hives, which is a four frames. And now some national hives, which is a different size of beehive. They run six frames in the nucleus. We run four frames because our frames are a lot bigger. So you are now currently top of the Paddock Bees podcast leaderboard colony count. Doesn't that roll off the tongue? So well, out of everyone we've spoken not- to so far, <laughs> you, you are up there. But we'll see how long you are up there before you get trumped. I know there's a few others out there with a number of uh, yeah. colonies as well. So we'll see see how long the reign is. No, I'm sure not long. Uh, it, uh, yeah, 150 is a lot for a hobbyist and very low for a commercial beekeeper. Uh, we are right on the edge. I suppose we are putting our toe into commercial beekeeping, but we put a lot of our effort into mead making. So we make mead from our beehives. If I was just a pure honeymaker, I'd probably be having to make, uh, I'd probably be running about 400 or 500 beehives just to support myself. If I was selling jar honey, I'd have to, I'd run about 300. If I was just selling honey in bulk in barrels, it'd be about four or 500 just to keep me in, uh, yeah, from living on, on the, uh, <laughs> living in the field with the bees. That's pretty much it. So yeah, absolutely. For some people listening, can you explain essentially what mead is? What's the high level yeah. process of making a good mead? Sure, absolutely. Look, Tim, you are personally invited to one of our mead making courses. We run them from time to time in the last year. It's been, uh, as you could imagine, fairly quiet for those. But uh, we we still did run some socially distanced mead making courses. We make mead out of our honey. Mead is an alcohol made from honey. So if you think of cider, it's made of apples. Beer is made from malted barley. Mead is made from honey. 
you mix honey, water, and yeast all together. And the yeast eats the sugar in the honey and produces carbon dioxide and, most importantly, alcohol. And those two things combine together. And it, it, that is the simplest explanation that it can be. Obviously, making, uh, <laughs> making meat is a little more difficult than mixing honey, water, and yeast. But that is the bare bones of it. And that's what we do. We make, um, we make mead out of our own honey down in the Wye Valley. We um, make several types of mead. We make a 14.5% traditional mead, which um, we started making because people kept on asking us why we didn't. And we make a lower 4% ABV sparkling mead. And that, uh, we make that in actually six flavors, which is really exciting. We're making a few out this year, a few seasonal ones to keep things fresh and keep things exciting. But that's what that's we do. Well, yeah, what, we make what, it. New, what new varieties are on the year, on the cards this season? Yeah, so uh, we have been experimenting with a rose-infused mead, and that was meant to be out for Valentine's Day, and we don't release anything until we're absolutely 100% happy with it, and we, in the end, decided that we would release it next year. <laughs> but we're, we're, make, we're experimenting with a rose-petal-infused mead. It wasn't quite there, but that is in the wings, ready to go. We've got a few that we're, we're uh, yet to release. Um, we're doing some barrel-aged meads at the moment, um, really nice meads in, in whiskey barrels, which is going to be very exciting indeed, with some really nice honey from the heather. Um, so it's going to be sort of like a, a nod towards um, the Scotland, but that our heather comes from the Wye Valley, uh, comes from the Brecon Beacons, actually. It's still the Wye Valley, but higher up in the Welsh mountains. But uh, yeah, we've got some really exciting things to come this year. A few things that I've been told I can't reveal because they are still yet to be released. Top secret. I just had to double check Top this secret, bottle yeah. to make I just had to check this bottle to make sure I wasn't going to fall off my chair on a 14.5% given how quickly this one's going down. But it's all right. I'm, I'm on the lower <laughs> content and I, I think I'll be all right with that one. But yeah. Yeah. You're on one of our so, session meets there, Tim. So, yeah, that's only at 4%, but still very nice. Hopefully you agree. <laughs> I'll do a session on that, that's for sure. Um, so the next question, just sticking with the mead, obviously for those who follow you will see that you've gone and taken on uh, a new premises. So obviously things must be going well. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So we have run out of room of our current premises. We were renting from an existing brewery that um, decided to disband this time last year. We then went on from there and shared with a company uh, who was going to open a cafe in the same building um, and do film events and things like that. That was obviously pre-COVID. They've changed their mind now and they've decided to do something different with the building, which is fine. However, we really want to do that and we want to open a sort of larger venue we want to bring tours. We want to talk to people about how we make mead and what we do. And we think the best way of doing that is to have our own building. Um, it's a bit more room. Um, and also we can, uh, yeah, we can make things much more efficiently uh, when we're only us in the building. <laughs> it's always hard to share with a neighbor. Um, so we are looking forward to have our own space and to be able to do what we want. Yeah, we often keep very unruly hours uh, with our production. You know, sometimes we're there very late at night and very early in the morning. Um, especially when we're loading up for a day of beekeeping, we are there very early in the morning loading kit onto the van. And then uh, if we're brewing or bottling, sometimes that goes on quite late at night. So it will be much better um, to have our own space. It was also much easier to control and much easier to sort of keep clean and keep tidy and all that sort of thing. So we're looking forward to that. We're down in Caldicott, down in South Wales. Well, just opposite from the castle, if anyone knows Caldicott well. 
that's where we're going to be. And you're, you know, when we're up and going and everyone's allowed to come visit us, we're going to be conducting tours and tastings and all sorts of things. Yeah, so we're really looking forward to that. Last mead question I've got. I know that there's a number of listeners who will be doing their home brewing. What would your best bit of advice be for them? Right, cool. So there's, there's two, possibly three really important things to go with home brewing. And I've done a lot of home brewing. When I was at university, we used to brew about 25 litres a week uh, at university and drink the majority of it between me and my flatmates and the people we would invite around to our parties. Uh, So there's some very important things to get right. And that is one, cleanliness. You need to make sure everything is spotlessly clean. And that doesn't mean clean as in your ferry washing up liquid, other brands are available. But it does mean that you need to make sure everything is absolutely pristinely clean in terms of um, sort of absolutely sterile. So you need to use a good steriliser. Um, Sterilisers won't work if there's any um, debris or any dirt there. So you need to use a sanitizer first. So that does mean a detergent. But then the second thing you need to use is a steriliser. That could mean a, um, a, 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 a solution called sodium metabisulfate, which you can get through many homebrew shops. Um, we also use something called peracetic acid, which is what we use in a commercial brewery. But as long as it removes all traces or as many traces as you can of bacteria and pathogens, that means that the the mead or beer or anything you make will be free of anything that's going to grow in there and cause spoilage. And you want the yeast you put into the, the mead to, <laughs> to be the only thing that's surviving. You don't want any bacteria because it's going to turn it to something that tastes a bit like a compost bin. So you need to make sure that's clean. That's the one bit of advice I do. The second bit of advice, and there are three, I've decided there are three now. The second bit of advice is temperature control. Don't get it too hot because you'll stress your yeast out. Yeast likes to be nice and calm and peaceful. You need to make sure it's within its happy zone. That means around about between 18 to 25, 26 degrees centigrade. And some yeast are even more sensitive than that, maybe between sort of 20 and 22 or 23. That's its happy zone. And some yeast like to be nicer and calmer and, and more cool. And some yeast are happier hot, but make sure you know which variety of yeast you're using. So that's your second bit of advice. Keep your temperature nice and stable during fermentation. And the third bit of advice, and the most vital, I think, in terms of the thing that most people get wrong when they're home brewing, is oxygen. You need to keep oxygen away from your alcohol. So fermentation is a result. So you add your yeast, your yeast makes alcohol and carbon dioxide. Your alcohol will react with oxygen. I don't know if you've, Tim, if you've ever had a beer that you've left on the side of your or your dressing table or your dinner table or your dining room table, any table really, yeah. kitchen, and you've left it overnight and you come back in the morning, you, you drink that beer because you're a bit thirsty and you think, hmm, this doesn't taste quite so nice as it did last night. Have you ever done that? Maybe once or twice. Yeah, I have too. <laughs> so if you've, if you've done that, um, what you need to do is you need to, um, <laughs> that's because oxygen has reacted with your beer. It's met the alcohol and it's turned the alcohol, if you, anyone knows their brewing chemistry or even their organic chemistry, oxygen meeting alcohol makes an aldehyde and then it makes something called an acetic acid. And that makes your beer taste oxidized. It tastes a bit like cardboard. It tastes pretty rough. And people go, hum, this is no good at all. I have made rough beer. And that's because you've mixed oxygen with it. Now, when I used to be brewing at uni, I used to think nothing of pouring the fermenter directly into the, <laughs> into the pressure tank. Uh, just mixing alcohol and oxygen willy-nilly. I didn't know. And actually, when I started to control the oxygen after fermentation, I used to make much better beer and also much better mead. So, yes, keep oxygen away 
from your finished product if you can stop splashing it don't you know try not to create much froth when you pour it from one container to another those are the three bits of advice i give you anyone who's doing homeschooling cancel the chemistry lesson just get your get your kids to listen to this one i think uh, that's right. that's some great advice there like forget doing your pe yeah. lesson just tune into this and go and make some mead so look I, I i know we could probably talk about the meads the whole session but obviously i want to sure. just come back to, to the beekeeping side of things so yeah absolutely what do you enjoy most yes. about beekeeping Oh, crumbs. What do I enjoy most? I enjoy getting out. I enjoy seeing lands the landscape and I enjoy the, I really enjoy feeling immersed with it. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like modern society is very distanced from its surroundings and in particular from nature. A lot of people will be shepherds and they'll be farmers and they will think, no, nah, Matt, you're talking rubbish. I live and work in nature all the time. But a lot of us work in an office, they work in cities. I think like I think it's a huge advantage to be in tune with nature, in tune with seasons, in tune with the weather. And I can tell you in the summer, I often know what the weather's going to do for the next three days, but I can't tell you what day of the week it is because I'm working with my bees and that's what's important to me. You know, I need to know what the weather's going to do. I need to know the long-term weather forecast and I need to know whether I'm going to get any honey this month or not. But uh, yeah, so I really enjoy that thing. I really enjoy having... You know, it's like putting your cards on the table saying, well, my bees are ready, but what's the weather going to do? You know, that's what it, I live and die by the weather. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's what I really enjoy. It, I really enjoy um, being in touch with it, being in touch with the seasons. And I enjoy interacting with nature in order to achieve a shared goal of producing honey. And the bees want to produce honey. I want to produce honey. And we sort of work together for that. I help the bees in their journey to produce honey. I, um, I, I'm not a beekeeper. The bees actually keep me. <laughs> so they, they look after me, they support me, they pay my mortgage and I need them to do that. Um, so it, it's a huge amount of pressure, but it's also incredibly rewarding when you um, work with nature to produce shared goals. Turning that question on its head then, what do you dislike most about beekeeping? Uh, right now I'm going around my hives and I'm looking at, some hives which have gone really well and i think great that one has got that's that's picked up the memo that it needs to be nice and strong and alive this time of year and some of my hives and we we, we regularly get losses in the winter that's probably my my least favorite thing so i go around this time of year and pick up the ones that haven't quite made it i look through my notes and think oh yeah right okay that was a late swarm okay the queen didn't start laying until midway through august let's say if it was a sort of july swarm okay so that means it had a sort of a slight delay in population the bees looking after the bees that go into winter weren't there so i had a lower population of bees that went into winter and that's why it died and i enjoy i enjoy working with nature but i actually don't enjoy the reality of nature which is uh things die when you don't um when you know things things die that's life and death um, bees sometimes do die if you don't look after them well um, and I I don't enjoy going around this time of year picking up the ones that haven't gone well however conversely there are lessons to be learned every single year and I think the most experienced beekeeper out there will say yeah look no they learn things all the time uh, there's nothing the bees can't teach you uh, and sometimes their lessons are very very harsh <laughs> so yeah that's it probably that you picked up on something there that I think is really important, which might just get yeah. brushed under the carpet by some people, which is record keeping. It's the ability yeah. to go back and see 
what's the story of that colony? What, when did you yep. get that colony? When did you put it in that hive? Where did it come from? Just to try and understand, mm. well, what, what were its chances in the first place? And I think that some mm. people coming into, into this might think, oh, I just need to check the bees on a weekly basis, but overlook the fact that, no, you need, you need to track what's happening. You need to remember what's happening, make notes what's happening, yeah. exactly for that reason. So, so you can learn from it. Yes, it's nature yeah. will do what it wants to do, but we need to know what we've done to that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you're completely right. So um, record keeping is vital for two reasons. One, if you're a beginner beekeeper and you want to know why your colony died, you think, okay, right, what happened to that colony? What's its history? Uh, fine. So you can go back and go, okay, well, that's where it went wrong. And then you learn from that and you go the next time you have a hive of bees, you go, okay, my last hive of bees died because of that reason. So let's not do that. The other reason to keep records is if you have too many bees to keep track of um, and you need to know where they came from because you can't remember. You go into an apiary and there's 15 beehives there and you think, right, <laughs> what was happening last time I was here? Because my brain is so full of all the other places I've been to, I can't remember. Uh, and that's also really important. So there's two big reasons. And I think people in between would, uh, <laughs> if you're not a beginner, but you've got several, or you've got less than, you know, you can keep track of, there's always things you can learn from your records. I, I don't know if you know, I, I trained as a, a geologist and I'm a scientist at heart. So I operate on a, a cause and effect and I, I change variables and then measure those variables as a scientist. And I think anyone who's interested in, in science and progression and improving what they do, and it comes with brewing as well, you change things when you're brewing. You change fermentation temperature, you change pH, you change how you manage a hive of bees. And it's always interesting and instructive to learn what the effect of that change was. I think there's huge amounts to be learned from that. And otherwise, you're just playing around with it. But actually, um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly important to keep good records. There are several good formats of records to keep. I'd implore anyone who's not very good at keeping records to start and anyone who uh yeah or to improve um there are several formats and any form is better than none even if you just write what you saw <laughs> uh on the brood box yeah. uh on the a lot of people just write um um with um whiteboard pen on a on a um a laminated piece of paper and put it underneath the crown board when they put the lid just before they put the lid back on and they read and say, the queen was happy, um, oh, honey levels, low, just basic stuff. But really, honestly, that will help, uh, you know, or oh, swarmed in yeah, at the end of May. Oh, shucks, you know, lost the swarm. Uh, and then they look at when the queen starts laying again uh, and then go, OK, right, we've got a queen. You know, at the end of June, she started laying again. That might be you know, fine. And then you think, OK, right, what effect is that going to have on my, on my um, winter mortality? Well, that queen you know, was fine because it, it swarmed early enough that it could build up its stores for winter. Oh, but I lost a swarm here in the end of July and it didn't really build up again very well. Right. Maybe I need to keep an eye on my late season swarming and that might help me improve my winter mortality levels. And that's how you learn. For some of the people out there, the, the new joiners to, to the beekeeping hobby, I would encourage yeah. you to have a look at the British Beekeepers Association website, BBKA because there you, you can find a template form as well. So if you're not sure what you're going to be looking for, head over to their website, have, have a look at that. Um, and additionally, one of the other things that I sometimes do is I'll just record a voice note throughout the whole inspection and I'll just talk to myself. Because I've only got three colonies, I can do that. Because if you're not sure about doing your record key keeping in your suit, then at least if you're just talking to yourself, you can go back, listen to it, double check that you've 
you've got everything right. And just one of the things that I do. So something to keep in mind, because you're never going to be doing it in the pouring rain. So your phone's always going to be all right. You're just going to get it covered in propolis. So. Absolutely. Some of us do do it in the pouring rain, Tim, because they've got no option. But uh, if you're, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you don't, yeah, if you can have the ability to choose, I would recommend not doing that. <laughs> yeah. So what's your best beekeeping story or experience? I, I want the funny ones. What have you got to share with the listeners out there? Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, I will give you two. One, when I was very young and I was watching the guy who I used to work for uh, catch a swarm of bees. And what he did is we went up to a swarm that was on an apple tree and it was a textbook swarm that he didn't have to climb anywhere to catch. It was sort of chest height on an apple tree. And he went through with his bare hands in the swarm. He picked out the queen and he held the queen in his bare hands above his head. And then he stood there and the bees fussed around for a bit and then they realized the queen was no longer there and then they all flew up in one big blob and then settled on his hands and then he walked down the street and the comet of bees followed him down the street until he got back to his apiary where the swarm had gone from and he put it in an empty hive and it was the most amazing thing i've ever seen uh so that's my one sort of amazing story uh, and I think that made a huge impression on me. And I couldn't believe how much nature and man could coexist. You know, everything we've been told is that we are um, antagonists of nature. We, we have a huge um, battle with nature. We, are, we, we damage nature to, to, to achieve supremacy. And I think that is often true. But I think that there is a, a lot that we can do to work with nature and to um, achieve a, an understanding. And I think that was an example of him uh, interacting with nature for its mutual benefit. The bees would survive. He would be able to give them a house to live in and they would produce honey for him, which was amazing. My uh, second quite funny story is that when I was living in Australia and I kept 10 hives of bees there. Now, let me tell you and your listeners, keeping bees in Australia is a lot more pleasant than keeping bees in the UK. The weather is usually better, I would say. The honey crops are usually higher because they are living on eucalyptus and they are much happier as a result uh, because they are usually gathering honey for about eight or nine months of the year. And in the winter, it's usually about 15 degrees rather than this week that's been about minus 15 in some parts of the country. <laughs> so I lost a swarm of bees. It went to the top of a eucalyptus tree. And because I was about 20 and was keen to impress my neighbours. I climbed up to the top of this eucalyptus tree with a saw in my teeth. I cut the branch off and I carried the branch and the saw down the eucalyptus tree, falling the last six feet or so to the floor. Uh, then I put the branch over the top of a beehive and tried to coax my bees back into a beehive. It wasn't quite the symbiosis of nature that I had hoped to emulate with my mentor. <laughs> but it was, it was still very successful, but it wasn't quite so uh, sleek and smooth, I think. How, how was the 2020 season for you last year? Yeah, a great question. Uh, 2020 was a really weird year. We had a very good spring. I don't know if any of your listeners agree. We had an extremely good spring where we were. The Hawthorne was out uh, early. Um, the apple blossom and all the blossoms were out within the month of May. And usually we have a staggered seasoning, uh, a staggered blossom season, but actually they all came at the same time. They all came together where we were here in South Wales. Um, it was great. We had an okay June where the spring extended into June. 
uh, and I was naively thinking that there would be no June gap. Now, I should explain to your listeners the June gap is the gap between the spring flow, which occurs during May to the end of May, and the summer flow, which occurs around here about the first week of July and goes to about the end of July in a good year. Um, and sometimes stops earlier due to poor weather. Um, now, I was naively thinking there would be no June gap this year. Um, however, it did not occur like that because, although there was no June gap, the summer flow around here came early and we had a very uh, wet, cold start to July around here, this exact locality. I know other places in the UK had quite a good year. We didn't have the uh, the warm weather we needed a lot of our honey around here comes from Tilia cordata, the small leaf lime, which is a native lime tree to the UK. When I say lime tree, many people think that I talk about uh, the citrus fruit, but I don't. I talk about um, the small heart-shaped leaves that make your car sticky when you park underneath them in the city. Um, we have a native one in the Wire Valley here, the small leafed lime, a lovely tree um, which grows in, in the woodlands, uh, in the valleys around here. It produces, uh, on a good year, about 70% of our honey crop. Um, a lot of our honey has been from there in the years 2018 and 2019. Uh, we had a very good flow for both those years, and it meant that last year um, perhaps felt worse than it was um, because we have had such good years in up till now. Uh, last year was okay. It was a disappointing year from the summer, uh, it could have been a bumper year had we had a warm July because we had a good spring. You never usually get a good spring and a good summer, but we were hoping for it. Uh, it didn't happen. So we had slightly low, lower crops than we have had in the recent years, but it was still OK. It was fine. I know people who have had better crops and I know people who have had worse crops around the country, but we did OK. Uh, it just wasn't record breaking. And as you know, this year's exceedance is next year's expectation. So um, but you, it never goes like that. And so looking forward to this season, what's the plan for 2021? Yeah, um, absolutely. So 2021, we're going to be breeding some of our own queens again this year. We've selected some lines that we need to breed from, which are very, very good. We would like to requeen more of our hives early on in the season to prevent late season swarming, which we know is a contributor towards um, winter losses. I've touched on that a little bit, but it's, I can't highlight to your listeners how important it is to control late season swarming. Um, you get a late season swarm, you get a, um, uh, you get a gap of population that travels through the, the months because there is a gap between when the queen leaves the hive and the gap between when the new queen starts to lay. And you get a, uh, that population gap that travels through the months. And um, all of a sudden, if that gap hits at the wrong time of year, um, you don't have that population required to look after the bees that go into the winter. Um, and worst case scenario is that you get that gap when they're meant to be raising the winter bees. Uh, that would be a very late swarm. But if you get a swarm in July, there is the potential for that. So we're going to try and requeen more of our uh, perhaps more elderly queens. I've got a terrible tendency to, to uh, look after queens that I think have been very good in previous years, hoping to get another year out of them. And sometimes that does work and often it doesn't because they turn into drone layers or swarm because the bees know that their days are numbered. So yeah, requeening. We're going to start early this year, depending on how the spring is. Obviously, you can't plan anything <laughs> this year. Uh, you can never plan anything with the weather anyway, but uh, this year is probably... Um, many uncertainties anyway covid everyone asked me how covid uh, affects beekeeping uh, it doesn't really beekeepers are essential workers in that they're looking after livestock um, i have a letter in my car 
<laughs> if I get stopped, never been stopped, very disappointing. But uh, you're looking after livestock, you're looking after animals. And as such, you need to go out and make sure they're happy and well looked after. Um, and so that's what it was for me this year. So uh, I enjoyed the quieter roads and uh, yeah, lack of lack of uh, people wandering around, uh, uh, often because a lot of my hives are in areas of countryside where sometimes there are footpaths and I do worry occasionally about uh, local ramblers, uh, feisty uh, cloud of bees after I've been uh, inspecting them. <laughs> I try and keep that situation to an absolute minimum. Anyone who is concerned yeah. about their reputation would, uh, but yeah, this year wasn't quite so much of a problem as it has been in years gone by. So that's, yeah, that's this year's plan. I should have mentioned, I did actually finish this bottle of mead about 10 minutes ago. It, it went down oh, pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad <laughs> to hear that. That was very enjoyable. So, pearls of wisdom, and we're thinking about new beekeepers and, and seasoned beekeepers here. Obviously, you've got yeah. like a good number of years under your belt now. For anyone new thinking about coming, in, coming into beekeeping this season, what would be your one bit of knowledge you would want to impart onto them and then yeah. maybe some seasoned beekeepers, things that they might have overlooked for the last few years. Sure. Well, you know, seasoned beekeepers um, will know um, where to look for their advice, I think. But um, I'll start with the beginner beekeepers, which is the probably easiest one to answer. I'd say um, don't lose heart. So I started beekeeping and when I uh, used to work for this chap, uh, he, he very kindly gave me a hive of bees to look after. And uh, let's be honest, annoy for the first couple of years of my beekeeping experience um i used to go into that hive uh, come what may every four or five days because i was worried about swarming um the bees used to be uh very annoyed by me going into them and i used to end up that uh, inspection with a couple of stings and not really having learned very much so i'd say probably new beekeepers um be easy on yourself because you're not going to know everything straight up be easier on your bees because um, I, as a new beekeeper, wanted to go and see what they were doing all the time. And perhaps that wasn't necessarily uh, important. I'd say before you enter a beehive, look at your inspection record, which you will be keeping because you're all extremely good beekeepers and you do that sort of thing. So uh, look at your inspection record for the last time you looked at your hive. Look at the questions you asked yourself and the things you wanted to know and use that as a guide to your next inspection. Don't open the hive because you want to see what they're doing. Although being honest as a new beekeeper, you probably will. And you have my full sympathy because I definitely did. Um, but go into it with a question in your head that you want to answer, whether that be, are they going to swarm? And if it's between the months of May to, well, even earlier, but sometimes uh, May to the end of June, then that could be very much uh, a reason for doing eight or nine day inspections. Fine. That's absolutely fine. Uh, but, you know, if it's sort of before May and after June, what do you want to know? Have a question before you open the hive because it'll, it'll steer your inspection towards that. Um, and don't just go in for a look because your bees will not thank you. <laughs> you interrupt their, their workflow and they will uh, let you know uh, that they are upset. Now, older beekeepers, more experienced beekeepers, I'd always just say, just keep your eyes open because you never know all the things that the bees are going to do. And um, although you can kind of gently, you can assume a lot of things and that does save time, you never can be quite sure. So just always keep your eyes open if you, if you, um, 
just for the unexpected or the new, they will always be teaching you things. I'd say that probably, and that's probably a, a huge, you know, probably people are going to roll their eyes and go, oh, everyone says that. But uh, I, you know, it's always astounds me the things that I learn after seasons of, of beekeeping. So as we, we start to think about wrapping this episode up, where and when will be will people be able to buy your honey and, and your mead from? How do people get their hands on your product? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, so we are available on www y valley now the y is not w-h-y it is w-y-e named after the river so w-y-e valley and then meadery like a brewery but we make mead so meadery.co.uk uh, uh that's where they can get us uh they can see lots of information on there we yeah we sell honey and mead on there we also do uh, experience days if you wish to hear me waffle on all day about bees then uh, come on down. We'd be super happy to meet you. And uh, yeah, and it'd be really great. Yeah, absolutely. So that's where they can get our honey and our mead from. If they live locally, there's lots of local uh, small deli shops and things that they can get it. But uh, if they live nationally, then we post, uh, yeah, around the UK. Now, the question that I end with, with everyone, is is jobs for the week. What are your beekeeping jobs for this week? Oh, so here we are in the middle of September. Uh, no, middle of February, even. <laughs> September would be easier. But February, <laughs> oh, I don't know where my mind is. Uh, so February, um, what are we doing this week? So this week, I will be looking out to see, uh, I've gone to visit three apiaries this week that I didn't get around last week. I'll be looking to see, oh, so we've had a very mild winter so far, with the exception of the last two weeks. Now, that is the worst the worst combination for a beekeeper. What we want is a nice hard winter in sort of November, December, nice and hard. Knocks the queens off laying. Brilliant, great, because it gives the bees time to sort of uh, to rest. It also makes the varroa mite, uh, stops the varroa mite going into the cells. So what we wanted this year, which we didn't get, was a mild, sorry, a hard cold winter in December and January and November and we wanted a mild winter in February, March, April so that the flowers and the plants could come out and the bees could have some good foraging time. So we didn't get that, we had a nice mild winter early on which was a pain because the bees were active, they ate a lot, they kept on uh, raising brood into late in the season which was a problem because when I and many other beekeepers came to vaporize oxalic acid, now you're going to have to stop me Tim if you need me to uh, talk about any of that sort of thing, but I vaporise oxalic acid to keep my varroa mite down. Now, vaporising uh, rids the bee of, the, of a varroa mite, but only if it's on the bee. It's a phoretic mite, so if it lives on, on the bee, if the varroa mite is in a cell, then the oxalic acid doesn't touch the bee. Uh, sorry, touch the mite. It just uh, only affects the external areas outside of a covered capped cell. And if the bees are breeding late, the varroa mite lives in the cell, doesn't come out of the cell, and the varroa treatment of oxalic acid does not affect it. So we wanted a nice hard winter. So there's no breeding, no mites inside cells. We wanted all the mites outside of cells so we could treat them. And then we wanted a nice gentle spring so the bees could come out and go and, ex uh, go and find some nectar. Now, we didn't have that. We had a nice mild winter and we had a hard, the last couple of weeks have been very, very cold the worst case scenario so this next week i'll be looking to see my bees are well fed one i'll be looking to see that they've got plenty of stores that's probably the same thing and i'll be looking to see that they're not got any damp or any leaking roofs any woodpecker holes any mice inside i put mice guards on but you know what mice are like they're buggers they'll get into all sorts of things woodpeckers are awful around here i've got several that can work out how to peck a, a hole in the side of a beehive awful so i need to change that uh, yeah so there's lots and lots to do at this time of year 
I look beekeepers think that winter is a great time to put your feet up, but actually um, it's a great time to lose hives of bees if you're not on your toes. And my guy who used to, I learned from, used to say to me, Matt, you can't make honey from dead bees. He's absolutely right. I've tried it. It's impossible. Uh, so you need to make sure they're happy, they're alive, they're well-fed. They're going to spring in a nice, strong position. I've really enjoyed this conversation, really enjoyed understanding a bit more about bees, your business and, and the enterprise and, and how you've got to where you are. So hopefully all of the other listeners will agree with me there. And once again, I just want to thank you for spending time today and, and joining me on the Paddock Bees podcast. So thanks again, Matt. Oh, an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I'm really uh, yeah, excited to be here. Thank you very much. All right, everyone, thanks for taking the time to join me today for the Paddock Bees podcast. I really hope you found it useful. I'd love for you to come back and give me some feedback. So head over to Instagram and send me a direct message or email me on paddockbees at gmail.com. I want to hear from you. I want to know what you want to hear about. So please don't hesitate to give me your thoughts. Once again, thanks for joining. See you next time. Bye.